hello and welcome to episode 119 of the 1099 for the week of November 13th, 2017. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the former creative director at Bungie, a co-creator of the Halo franchise, and the current president and creative director for View1 Interactive, Marcus Leto. Marcus, if I had your resume, I think I would print it out and like staple it to my chest or like hand, like hang it on the fridge just so I can always be displaying it at all times. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. And absolutely. Uh, and you know, along with your resume, I also did some digging that always leads to Wikipedia and different stuff like that on you. And mm-hmm. you've been in graphic design and interactive media since, you know, early nineties, 1991. And your education at Kent State, it's also all, everything to do with graphic design and stuff like that. But, True. Looking back to let's let's go to 1997 really quick. Let's let's do a time machine real fast. When you okay. began the creation process of Halo, what were your personal expectations? I mean, it's so hard to, you know, you look back on that series and it's almost larger than life at this point. It's this kind of cultural piece. So I, I doubt you could have really, you know, <laughs> expected that. But did it feel back then like a major early test in your career to build a shooter like that on the Xbox on a console and not the PC? Oh boy. Well, because it was such an evolution. Uh, it didn't start out as a shooter at all. And, uh, as is well known that it started out as an RTS because we had just come off, uh, working on Myth, the Fallen Lords. So most of the studio was already in process with building Myth 2 while, um, I had been working remotely with Jason Jones for quite a time on the myth series. And uh, it was a good opportunity for me to pick up and move out to Chicago where Bungie's offices were at that time and, uh, and sit down with Jason. And it was just the two of us um, kind of picking up from this idea where we would take the myth engine uh, and start building this sci-fi universe uh, uh, in, in which this new game would take place. Mm-hmm. So, um, the evolutionary steps for it were numerous and lengthy. Um, so it, it took some time before it actually became something that was recognizable as Halo. Was it a eureka moment once you found that thing that became recognizable as Halo? I've talked to, I talked to the Dead Cells developers who released a really great game on Steam and early access uh-huh. earlier this year. And they had said, like, actually similar to Halo, they're like, this was a tower defense game. This was entirely different. And they went through iterations and they found this, you know, Metroidvania rogue legacy style game, which is nothing close to what it was. Was there just this <laughs> turning point moment where you're like, Oh, this isn't a, this isn't an RTS at all. This is a first person shooter. It, there was a couple moments. Uh, the, one of the first that, uh, that really sparked, I think, uh, life into the project and got us thinking in a different direction was when, um, uh, unlike the myth series where it was just a bunch of, uh, uh, individual character units on the field that you would, uh, you know, uh, uh, band select and move from one area to another, we had, uh, vehicles now for the first time. So, um, this one vehicle that ultimately evolved into the Warthog, um, that I had built was, it, it looked more like a Hummer at that time. <laughs> um, and it was, uh, we had to build this, this, uh, physics system to drive these things around the map and, uh, allow the AI to actually do the driving. So we, uh, Charlie Gao at that time, he was a, a fantastic programmer, still with Bungie. He's now the president of Bungie. Oh, wow. Um, so it was, um, uh, he is fresh out of school. We were all together in this little room. He's building the physics for this thing. And, and he got this, uh, along with Jason building the AI for pathfinding of these vehicles, we got this thing hot dogging around in an environment in a way that when we were point clicking on the map to make these things move about, we saw what fun it looked like it was having driving around the environment to the point where we're like, wait a minute, why aren't we driving these things? <laughs> uh, so, so it was at that point that, uh, that we really got intrigued with the idea of taking first person control. And it actually, it started out as a third person. Uh, it started that evolutionary step then went into third person, uh, where we took control of, a character who could get in and out of that vehicle and drive it around with those amazing physics that Charlie had made. 
years later there were different games i wish i could remember the name it was one of these like xbox summer arcade games where Mm -hmm. you did have that sort of tower defense overview look and then you can zoom in and become a character you can become either a turret or maybe some other kind of roaming thing was that ever a consideration when you are creating an rts where you're like okay but it's also fun to walk around did you ever consider doing a blend of that or was it just one of those things that once you actually went from third person to first person you're like no this is the game yeah we we actually made a conscious decision to not try to blend those two game spaces together in a way that um compromised the focus of uh of the game so uh when we went for it we went for it whole hog and made sure that um uh, that it did have that kind of focus so we could, uh, finesse and fine tune the gameplay mechanics surrounding it. In, in the moment, again, this can be kind of hard to remember exactly. Did it feel mm-hmm. like you had this insane amount of graphical bandwidth with the original Xbox? Just this new console that, you know, at the time was the most powerful thing out there. Was that <laughs> one of those things? I mean, not, maybe not compared to PCs, but for consoles, did you feel like, oh my God, there's so much we can do here? Or was it still kind oh, of, all right, we're a little God, bit strapped? It's hilarious to think of that in hindsight too, yeah. because it's, it's such, um, I mean, it really can't do much in, in today's comparisons, but, um, but back then, no, it was, it was something that, um, it was a, it was a huge challenge for us. It did have, certain amount of graphical power that um, was comparable to what we were doing on the PC. But um, uh, moving to the console, I think the biggest transition for us, of course, was just that controller. Uh, we were so used to making a game that worked great with keyboard and mouse. And uh, suddenly we had to invent this completely different way of interfacing with the game that uh, was foreign to any of us. Uh, none of us had ever done anything like this before. And even if you're doing just, you know, all this play testing, getting all these people to, you know, kind of bang their heads against it, it's still hard to know what the general public is going to think. And the more developers I talk to, the more I feel like most teams know the strengths of their game the weaknesses of their game it's like okay we we couldn't put as much time into this certain aspect that we wanted to but we made it work the best we can but nailing down that public opinion can be tough again kind of looking to the reaction of it before the reaction happened how did you see the original halo as it was launching like were you seeing this as we just did something really special that could change how shooters work on consoles or was it just we think this is good here we go you know it's um it uh that's a that's a tough one because we we were so nervous about what we um about the public opinion um honestly we were building something for i mean from the beginning uh, a game that we were excited to play first mm-hmm. and foremost and as is true with our new studio uh Bungie um is full of its harshest critics internally um which is fantastic you need that in a development studio you need people constantly asking questions stepping away away from the 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 closeness of the of their proximity to the project and being able to step away from it and see it from an outside perspective and really critique what works and what doesn't and um we were lucky enough to have a great number of individuals like that in the studio, as we do here at V1 now, that look at projects from that perspective and really, really pick it apart for what works and what doesn't. Um, so from a gameplay standpoint, when we first shipped Halo, we were confident that it would play well in people's hands, but we had no idea if it would really spark their imaginations and, um, and, you know, attached to them in that way where, you know, when you play a great game and you enjoy, uh, uh, just delving into the universe that the, uh, that the developers created for you. And then when you stop playing it and you're thinking about it later, uh, as you're eating lunch or taking a walk and you're imagining, uh, what else is happening in this universe. That's the kind of thing we didn't anticipate, really. We were building a fiction that we were uh, excited about, but we had no idea it would spark that kind of imagination. You just mentioned before, like, people on the outside picking apart 
a lot of your work looking through it and making sure that you get those outside opinions from people who aren't just constantly surrounded by that project. And you do have a lot of experienced people at V1, but for the newer developers you have alongside you, do you kind of have to teach them how to take those personal edits? As a writer, I wrote for GameSpot and IGN, and you get these mm-hmm. critiques back about something that feels like you are sending this, like, this is, I spent all this time on this, I really like this, and then someone just tears it to shreds, and you get used to it. <laughs> you you kind of get that thicker skin, and you understand that this is for the good of the game or this is for the good of this article do you kind of have to help people understand that you know play testers and people on the outside they're not trying to take personal shots at you they're trying to make this thing better uh yeah and i i think that's even true of some of the seasoned devs that um the way that you say something that there's ways that you can critique something openly uh in an environment that um are good in ways that are bad, of course, and it takes a certain amount of training. Of course, we we have uh, younger in- individuals here at the studio who are fresh to the industry. Uh, it's a great mix uh, internally, and uh, yeah, they look at games um, very passionately um, um, in a way that's very different from some of the seasoned devs who understand how to temper some of that feedback a little bit more. Um, it just comes with age. Um, but it also is something that, um, if something comes out wrong or is taken incorrectly, it's, uh, those are the kind of things that where it's good to have some of the seasoned devs around to go, Hey, you know, you could probably say this a little bit differently or, <laughs> or, or what you really mean by that is probably this, this and this. And, 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 uh, to the point where we can actually then articulate, um, what the real problems are and, uh, pull some of the passion uh, or at least separate the passion. We don't want to delete that part of it because that's super important. And that's why we love making what we do. Um, and, and, um, so we want that to be there. We just want to be able to differentiate between that and the objective feedback. Yeah, I'd assume you'd have to definitely balance that and not take every single critique and think it's correct. I was just talking to Eric Pope, who's the community person for For Honor and kind of looking, mm-hmm. you know, he'll look through like Reddit threads and Twitter. And there's, of course, people yelling, you need to do this or you need to change that. <laughs> and you understand that passion. And that's, important. oh man, I, as someone who's yeah. very passionate about, let's say Overwatch, like I will yell on Twitter every once in a mile or into the void about why I think this character <laughs> needs to be buffed or that. But I'm also not a developer and I'm looking at it from a very unique, specific perspective perspective about how I play the game. So it can it be difficult to kind of pick through that and understand like this is a real problem. This is a semi crazy person yelling into again the void to ask you to change this one thing. It has is uh-huh. that gotten easier over time or harder with all the different sources out oh, there? Oh I think it's it's become a little easier just knowing uh uh just the, those of us who have been doing this as long as I have um you do get thicker skin and you understand that, um, especially with the Halo franchise, uh, as we continue to develop it for 15 years, that, uh, the fan base was very invested in what we were creating and, um, and they all have wildly different opinions about what's the right path forward. And so you're going to get feedback from all different spectrums, um, and passionate feedback, assume, and like assuming that they are absolutely correct in what they think <laughs> is the right path forward. And it's our job to listen to them and say, okay, that I, we understand why they're passionate about it. We understand, uh, their opinion, but, uh, we, we need to understand also how to filter it properly. Yeah, absolutely. And you did art direction for the series for Halo, um, all mm-hmm. the way until ODST and then for Reach took over creative direction. But I bet you have millions of stories about all of those games and all the art that went into it. And there is a certain, you know, thematic consistency with how those games look. Of course, it's in the same universe, but does any art from any particular entry in that series really stick out that you work on? Do you have a favorite? Halo game in terms of how the actual presentation came together, whether it's due to what the final product looked like, or maybe just certain stories that went into that development. Is there anyone in that series from 1 to ODST that you're like, that's the one? I feel like uh, Halo 3 and Halo Reach were my two favorites mm-hmm. uh, with regards to how the product, you know, the end product came together. Um, uh, with Halo 3 specifically, it was a great, um, 
it was a great marriage of uh, the vision for the project marrying up with the technology of what we could achieve. Yeah. Um, from my perspective as an artist and as a creative director, um, I'm much more mechanically oriented, I guess, is one way of saying it, um, that uh, I'm much more like getting my hands greasy in the engine, understanding what the engine can do, and having fun with exploiting the awesome parts of what a uh, rendering engine can do and the hardware, what it can accept, and and uh, and then imagining how that marries up with the gameplay mechanics of what we're trying to achieve as well. Yeah. So, so I never look at something just as a pretty picture. I'm looking at it, um, how we can actually achieve some of these really great technical goals mixed with vision, mixed with gameplay mechanics. Um, and so Halo 3 was a great culmination of those elements mixing together really well because we kind of were firing on all cylinders. We had a really solid engine um, to work with at that point. We had worked most of the kinks out of it through Halo 2. And... Um, and uh we just i think we we made something that really really sung well together and then into halo reach we decided okay now we're going to have a little bit more fun with this though <laughs> we we've gone we've gone to the point where uh we've pushed the hardware really really hard but now we understand more on the software uh side of it what we could do to continue to um maximize the engine and so we took and gutted huge sections of the rendering engine for halo reach to allow us to build much larger vistas many more characters out on the battlefield like uh for instance we had um uh background battles um uh constantly going off in the middle of uh in the middle of missions in reach and um we had to develop all brand new uh, AI systems with uh, uh, LOD systems on them, so we could have dumbed down AI that uh, that carried out these pretty significant battles off in the background, but didn't tax us with rendering um, on the engine side. So a lot of really fun things like that enabled us to create a bigger epic picture that we just couldn't achieve in Halo Three. Halo 3 and Halo Reach were the two I was actually going to mention as like the two that stuck out for me. So I'm glad we're on the same page there. Oh, yeah. Uh, when you did take over as a creative director for Reach, how difficult was it to innovate in the ways you want to innovate, leaving really your own stamp on the franchise while also trying to satisfy that hardcore Halo audience who, you know, they want advancements, but they don't really want that formula to change. You look back at ODST. <laughs> yeah. And I think now it's looked upon very fondly. I think a lot of people point to ODST as like, man, that's one of the most creative, interesting ones we've seen. But at mm-hmm. the time, I felt like there, there was blowback. It was different. It wasn't the Master Chief story. People were like, no, nah, where's that again? So yeah. was hitting that balance difficult? Oh, it was because we tried a number of things with Reach in the early stages. Um, we had uh, squad me- mechanics. Um, uh, that we had worked on for quite a long time, uh, that we thought this might be an opportunity, uh, since we're not focusing on the chief, we have noble team. We have a number of Spartans now, um, that we'd like to have by our sides in some more meaningful way. Um, so we did try, uh, it was a very light, uh, squad mechanic, uh, commanding system that ultimately got in the way of what Halo is. And uh, and it's something that we decided, you know what, um, while we put months of work into it, it wasn't a feature that we felt would complement and continue to hold true to what Halo is in the first place. So we scrapped it. God, that has to be um, so painful to scrap something you put that much work into. Oh, God, it was really hard. There were a couple things like that in, in Reach that uh, – that we tried. Uh, we even put a fair amount of effort into uh, water combat uh, with vehicles, um, these great watercraft that would uh, scale over um, uh, big ocean swells and jump off of them and be able to fire. It was basically the equivalent of the warthog in, okay. in the water. Uh, and it was awesome. And it was really fun. But uh, it was ultimately something that that feature in particular – would have been a great addition to the game 
in in all honesty, but um, it was just something we looked at from a holistic standpoint. About uh, six months into production with a very small team focusing on it, we knew that if we were to really land this thing well, we were going to have to put far more effort into it than what we could afford. So that was one of the toughest ones to let go of because uh, we knew early enough on that we just weren't going to be able to make it um, uh, a perfect system for the game. Does that stand out as the biggest cut that you wish you know you would have had the time and resources and you know manpower to finish? Is there anything else that stands out from Reach where you started working on it and just you know maybe like pulling teeth like I, we just got to get rid of this? Um, well, it was either that or space combat. So okay, that's a big uh, and, one. <laughs> and we knew space combat was critical to the story uh, for the for the kind of mission flow that uh, we wanted to create for the campaign. Um, so we, uh, we put our eggs in that basket instead. And so, yeah, it was, it was a terrible loss. We were, we were very upset about, uh, having to cut that and, uh, for having spent as much time as we did on it. Some the more I talk to people, uh, especially people who are creative directors, the more you learn, there are just giant chunks of games that were like half developed or sometimes almost <laughs> fully developed that like just couldn't fit. You can't fit that in the puzzle. There has to be certain cuts that... I would just imagine over and over, you're like, yeah. ah, we could make an entire different game with what we just cut and like left on the cutting sure. room floor. Do, do, do that ever? Do those things ever get put into future games? Like maybe something you pull out of Halo Two, where you're like, no, we're actually gonna, we like this idea, we're gonna use it in Halo Three. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. The uh, the Falcon, um, which had its kind of debut with the, uh, I think, what was it called, the Hornet in um, in Halo Three. Um, but it didn't really shape up the way I was interested in it because that was a vehicle that actually took uh, shape during Halo 2. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had been around sitting, um, on like a getting collecting dust on a shelf for, for years before we finally brought it back to life in a way that, uh, uh, did it justice. That was one thing. Um, but making, making games, um, like any creative endeavor, takes a certain amount of experimentation and um and it's that's the fun part of it is is exploring these different mechanics and that kind of thing that um uh that spark imagination and inspiration within the team and it's those things uh then you find uh, uh those things that become special that's the way you innovate and and you uh create something that's really that's very creative um where you allow the team to explore certain things, um, whatever it may be. Uh, Forge, for instance, was a complete, it was a skunk works project, um, that didn't come on until very late in the game during, uh, what was that? Halo three, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I can't even remember, <laughs> but, uh, but it was, uh, it was something that, uh, was not planned. Initially, it was a, uh, it was a, it was a passion project from a few, uh, individuals on the team who got really excited about this player, player built, uh, multiplayer space. And, um, uh, fortunately they had, they stood it up on its legs early enough on in the project that, uh, we all were like, uh, this is a no brainer. We've got to do this. This yeah. is awesome. And, um, yeah, we, we put our effort into it. Um, so there are things like that, but when it came on, on reach to between water combat or space combat, we had stood them both up and we looked at them both objectively and understood how much effort was going to have to go into them in order to make them reality. Uh, so, uh, we had to, we had to pick one. And you're now doing, you know, experimentation like that on a different scale as the president of you on interactive. And I assume. And loving every minute of it. Absolutely. (laughs) And I assume that you've, you know, kind of told the story about why before, but for the people who don't know, what fueled your decision to start that company to kind of get out of maybe the crazy AAA world and try it (laughs) at a different scale? Oh gosh. Yeah. After Halo Reach, we moved our team of some 200 people over to the Destiny project, which had been under construction since Halo Reach. So it oh had already God. been, yeah, it had been, uh, under construction for I, at least three, almost four years. Um, because had it really at that point, 
Oh yeah, no. Oh, during God. during o- ODST, it was uh, it was being uh, there was a small team of uh, about eight to ten people. Uh, oh, that's that, incredible. Yeah, um, it it had gone through many evolutionary changes as well. Um, but by that time, uh, we moved our team onto Destiny. The engine for Destiny still was not operational. And I had about 200 people from my project mixed with at least 50 to 60 on the Destiny project at that time. Um, and it was, it was a little rough at first. It was a, it was a good transition period for everyone. Mm. Um, a lot of design on paper at first, which was, which is not exactly how I like to make games at all. <laughs> um, um, since, since I'm a very, ground up kind of designer when it comes to making games. Um, but I worked on Destiny for almost a year. And since it had already been under construction for so long, and since it had um, a full uh, staff of leadership, including Jason, who is now at the helm of Destiny, um it was a good opportunity for me to take part in helping them develop uh, key aspects of the uh, of the game, but at the same time, it just wasn't something I was a part of. And um, so I, it was a good opportunity to part ways at that time. Um, amicably, of course, uh, I'm still very good friends with everybody there at Bungie. And, um, but it took some time after I left to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. Actually, um, it wasn't long after I had left that uh, Bungie invited me to come back and start a new project, uh, doing something completely new oh, wow. uh, with with a small team. So I did, and we actually did that for about six months, and um, and we spent a good good amount of time building a, uh, a prototype that uh, was fully functional. And we presented that to the team when there was pretty, uh, there was some good excitement around that. And, um, but then it was very clear at that point that Destiny needed to have laser-like focus on the project with Destiny 1 because they were having some issues with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, distraction in any shape, whether or not it be some little shiny light over in the, uh, over in the corner, like we, what we were creating, um, was a was a problem so i'm guessing uh, you can't talk about that project in any no unfortunately i can't it's uh it got put in a box and then oh, uh man. shipped into this room in uh kind of like the ark of the covenant now it's sitting <laughs> it's sitting somewhere uh so yeah we'll see if that ever uh, did, ever comes to did life. any aspects from that project ever get seen or added to destiny or destiny 2 like have you seen anything from those games where you're like oh that was one of the ideas we started from that six month project no no nothing as a matter of fact this game was so wildly different from destiny that uh uh, yeah sharing that universe with destiny would have been a real oddity but um yeah so it was uh it was it was kind of disheartening to you know come to the realization that if we were to stay there uh, the, the deal was that we'd have to, uh, shift focus and work on the Destiny project for a minimum of six to nine months, which we knew in reality meant permanently. Hmm. Um, so, uh, at that time it was, uh, Joe Tung, myself and a couple other folks. Um, Joe Tung was the, uh, executive producer on Halo Reach, who's now down at Riot. Um, uh, and he, he and I made the, decision together we're like okay this is a good time to say our final goodbyes to Bungie, and uh and we did um so finally then i was uh, i had cut the tether a hundred percent and um i kind of went on a bit of a walkabout for a while <laughs> because i i wasn't exactly sure what i wanted to do next yeah. um uh, the world at that time, uh, mobile games were still very popular. Um, I mean, this was only four years ago, but, uh, mobile games were still, uh, a possibility. Uh, I was looking at giant AAA game ideas at the same time. I was, uh, exploring different, I had about five different game universes that I was, uh, creating fiction for. And eventually one of them kind of percolated to the top that got me super excited. I was like, oh man, I keep coming back to this one idea. 
And um, ultimately, I decided, you know what? This is the kind of thing I, I, I feel like I we got to prototype something surrounding this this fiction, this universe that uh, we were creating. So I hired a couple uh, uh, programmers f- uh, from a local school right here uh, called DigiPen. It's just around the corner from our office right now. And the three of us built a fully playable prototype and uh, started pitching that around to uh, publishers and ultimately landed a really great deal with uh, someone who I can't talk about right now. But oh, um, but uh, we uh, were so excited about the deal because uh, we had talked to, you know, all of the, the, the big hitters and um, not many of them were able to... Uh, um, come forward with a, a budget that would actually um, um, work with the kind of game we were making, the the scale of game that we were developing. Um, they're used to the very small uh, mobile game budgets. And um, so fortunately, we were able to to uh, uh, find this partnership that really worked well for us as a studio, allowed us to actually open up a real brick-and-mortar studio, hire the folks we have. We've got now um, 20 uh, individuals here now, oh, uh, which is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, the studio is growing like crazy. I'm hiring many folks who I hired back at Bungie uh, 10 to 15 years ago. Now I'm rehiring them back. <laughs> Uh, under under the roof of V1, which is great. So it's it's really a fantastic thing to have this mix of uh, seasoned devs with some brand new talent uh, uh, who are fresh to the industry, uh, who have a passion and a fire in them, uh, yeah. as, and then combine that with the wisdom and experience of the uh, seasoned devs who have been around the block several times, built very big AAA games several times uh so they know how it goes um and to see that kind of mix together in the same room is just electrifying it's really great two follow-up questions based on that uh how long how many years have you put in this project and what stage would you say you're at with it so what i can talk about let's see that's a good question cut if you include my um mulling around my walkabout period (laughs) it's 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 probably been about three years but okay um the real the real meat of uh development really started about a year ago um where we had been um we explored in the unity engine for a little while because it was like photoshop for designers so it's Mm -hmm. super easy to interact with but it's it's not a really good engine for perf and for uh, uh, customization, uh, the kind of things that we really needed to do in order to build the scope and the scale and the complexity of the game that we're building. So we switched over to the Unreal Engine and uh, have been pleasantly uh, uh, surprised with some of the things that we can get out of it. Um, and also, uh, in addition to that, uh, it's a challenge as well, on the, especially on the, the engineering side of things uh, when it comes to building custom features and such. But um, it's, all, it's, um, it's, it's working very well for us. Uh, and you did mention before you're not able to talk about the publisher at this time, but Correct. if there were to be a estimated date, on when that information might be available. Are we approaching something where you're like thinking about like, all right, it's time to kind of let people know, or are you still early enough that you're like, let's hold off? Well, I can say that, uh, that we are approaching a time soon, but I can't tell you when. Okay. It will be soon. Totally understand. I'll, I'll accept that as good enough. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned before how your team's grown to about 20 and you do have a yeah. lot of these experienced people you work with in the past. But when you do, when you're building a team, when you're making a new project like this, how important in your mind is it to bring in new diverse developers who might not come along with the regular AAA baggage? And I guess what I mean by that, I was talking to Rami Ismail recently on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And he does a lot of international talks and talks to a lot of people who maybe they're in different spots and they haven't made games the way a lot of you know people in the US have made games. And they have a lot of different ideas about what games can be. Things that different genres, different ideas, different mechanics that haven't really been created yet because they're thinking outside of the normal box. They're thinking outside of the, oh, yeah. the shooter. The, the It has to be open world. There has to be microtransactions. <laughs> Call of Duty. There has to be a loot box that drops on Normandy Beach. Um, 
Of course, you need that experienced leadership. And I think, you know, you mentioned the people you bring in. That really helps. It helps kind of bring these people along. But is there value in taking some chances on less experienced people who might have strange, unique, interesting ideas? Um, For sure. I relish in bringing in those younger individuals who are brand new to this industry, who do bring that passion. And one of the greatest things about them is that they don't see the barriers in front of them that some AAA devs do. Uh, they don't see, see certain problems, I should say, as barriers. Um, mm. they, um, are so willing and eager to take on complex problems and stumble through them, uh, with our help and figure them out and learn and grow. So it's, uh, I, there's no replacement for that kind of passion and that kind of, um, that, that kind of, uh, uh, you know, effort that comes along with it. I constantly remind them that I, that remember back when, we were making Halo 1 uh, in Chicago. There were only 15 to 20 of us in this room, and we were all in our mid-20s at that yeah. time. None of us knew what the heck we were doing. <laughs> I mean, we, we really didn't. We, we uh, Not on as far as building a, a game this scale that we were developing. So it was new territory for us. And where we, where we struggled the most... Josiah, to be honest with you, was mm-hmm. with the understanding of project management and scoping of projects and that kind of thing. And that's when we, when we, uh, went through the awful, awful death marches of crunch throughout Halo 2 and Halo 3, uh, that we will never do again. Um, uh, there's no reason for that kind of thing. Uh, so that's where, we went through the ropes of having to figure that out, and that was really hard. Yeah. Um, uh, and it took a tremendous toll on on many people within our our team. Um, so I see that same passion, and I see that same lack of knowledge as to how to really scope a project with some of these young individuals that come to the studio. But it's so fun to be able to now guide that and 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 push that along a proper path where they don't run into the same issues that we ran into when it was just the set of uh, young individuals <laughs> with really no knowledge uh, outside of that so it's a it's it's really um a pleasure having uh this this diverse group of individuals together i i'm really glad you brought up crunch because something i did want to get into is kind of maybe some of your game design and just you know design philosophies in general at v1 is that something that you know now that you have these years of experience and you have these people who have this experience are you is your goal to eliminate crunch to that even there's always some days we're going to work later there's always some times where it's going to be harder but have you kind of figured it out to a point where you're like we don't need to just wear ourselves out over this (laughs) well there's no reason or no need for the the slog of a long-term crunch however I will be clear in saying that I don't think crunch is a bad word like okay. is been uh, put into the industry right now or the, the it's the, I know it's a hot topic. Um, crunch is something every everybody does. Everybody does it. Um, not just in the gaming industry. I mean, if you're doing your homework at night, if you're in school, you're crunching because you want to do something awesome for that assignment, uh, if you're building anything creative or anything that requires any kind of, um, uh, innovation or, or creative input, there will be a crunch, but it can be managed in a way that makes it a healthy experience. And in our case, we have like, a, for instance, we have every two months, we have a major milestone. We'll crunch. If you want to call it that for about a week, a week and a half or so. And it's three to four days out of a week. And I don't want people staying here later than 9 p.m. Um, it's the kind of thing where it creates more of, uh, this, this, uh, focused effort from the team to, um, and this esprit de corps 
uh, almost, you know, with the yeah. team to like, uh, let's like, this, let's make this final push to like do these last few little things that are just going to really add the icing on the cake for this milestone and make it special. Those kind of things often don't happen until things really start to come together at the end of uh, a milestone where where all the working pieces and parts are starting to actually mesh together well. Mm-hmm. It's a great opportunity for everybody to you know, just put those little polishing touches on. So it's fun to do it in that case. It's not fun to do it, however, when a project is poorly managed or yeah. poorly led. And that's the, the mistakes that we learned, uh, sadly, um, at the expense of individuals on teams because Halo one, Halo two, uh, and even into Halo three, we saw, we saw crunches that went from nine to 12 months that, oh, uh, that, yeah. And that were, uh, at least five to seven days a week, you know, of course, um, that we're, it was minimal hours on the weekends. We didn't like people staying all night, but people were working themselves to death. Yeah. And at the end of it, at, at the end of that kind of experience, we saw marriages end. We saw individuals have to check themselves in for mental issues and other kinds God. of things that are stress related. And it was awful. Um, and it was something that's, uh, that kind of expense is 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 reprehensible now like uh, there's no reason that has to happen and so we look at that very seriously now um and and take that kind of thing very seriously where we want everyone here even uh within the office i encourage people to um like uh just to manage manage their time as best as they possibly can so they have as healthy a work as healthy life outside of work as they do yeah. inside and like we don't even have uh paid time off or anything here at the office we want people just to take as much time as they need throughout the year just promising to get the work done that they've promised to get done mm-hmm. um but you know like be with their families, be with their kids in the afternoon if they want to be, uh, if we go to a soccer game or to the concert at night or, or just hang out with their friends for an afternoon and not feel guilty about it. Like actually relish in being happy outside of work and, and, uh, and, uh, uh because the more that they are healthy and balanced in that way, the happier they are here at the office. Yeah. And that directly impacts the quality of the work that they create and the, I mean, you can see it in the game we're building right now. You can see that kind of that happiness that comes along with it, uh, how it translates into the features that are being built. And that matters so much when it comes to um, a, a game being built well. And you could see it out there when you play a game, you can kind of tell Wow, this was game, but this was built with a game who, or with a, with a team who was really unhappy or was crunching so much at the end that they just wanted to get this thing in a box and get it out the door. So it's something that's, uh, I think is really important as developers for us all to recognize, uh, seriously. It's absolutely something you can see in a final product. Like you can, mm-hmm. there's definitely times when I was reviewing games where you can just notice, like, man, this was a team who just didn't want to be doing this anymore. And you don't blame those people because like <laughs> yeah. you said, there's different types of crunch. There's that crunch when you have a passionate team who works well together and wants to keep moving. They have a breakthrough. They're trying to get stuff done because they want to because they're excited about it. And I still think, I think if you get too obsessive about that, that can harm you without you really knowing mm-hmm. it. Because like you mentioned, that personal life is important. And even if you're kind of you know passionately obsessed with something you got to understand that like, you have a family you have something back home that mm-hmm. also needs attention you can't just keep giving them attention and then there's also the you know the developers being mismanaged and then there's the publisher having certain dates you have to hit and it's, i think uh, that must be the worst possible combo of <laughs> constantly having to hit these dates with a team that's been mismanaged from the start and suddenly you're just in a situation where like you said nine to twelve months of crunching that's that's has to be i'm glad that we're at a point where we're talking about it now uh i think it's yeah. maybe because we're so we're so much more open with mental health and with dealing with this kind of stuff before it was mm-hmm. one of those like oh it's part of the job but is it is it kind of nice for you and i don't know heartening for you to see that we're more open about talking about this and there's not this forced nine to 12 months like does that almost seem crazy to even look back on now 
Oh, I'm so glad that we're talking about it, uh, really. And I'm so glad we don't look at it as a bunch of seasoned devs going like, yeah, I went through nine months of crunch and I've got skin as thick as iron now and I've got this machismo about it, you know, because that's BS. It's, it's, uh, it's a harmful thing. And uh, I'm so glad that we're looking at it from a real human perspective now and understanding what what the repercussions really are um, and how serious they are. Um, and that people are, are, like you just mentioned, are more comfortable now with actually um, expressing uh, how it affects them and, um, and, and more comfortable with, you know, um, recognizing, you know, why the, why it is that crunch uh, affects them in, in certain ways. Like I had guys, oh my God, I had one guy who, um, after a serious crunch, he um, would drive home uh, from our office in Bellevue to Seattle, and he would get home and realize that he had blacked out and didn't real and didn't remember how he got home. Oh my God! So he could have he could have killed somebody as yeah. well as himself, um, uh, and it got so so bad to the point where he had to take uh, at least four months off uh, in order to recover. And so I think he's doing well now. I haven't talked to him in a while yeah, since he's so. still at Bungie, but it's, 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 um, it's scary, that kind of thing. Like there's, uh, and again, there's no reason that has to happen nowadays. Uh, if you plan well and if you have good leadership in, in place who is steering the ship properly. There's so many tragic cases and there's also, you know, publishers who even before a game comes out, as soon as the game goes gold, you see development teams get laid off. Like, and I couldn't mm. imagine how difficult that must be to, like you said, you're putting everything to that. If you're blacking out on the drive home, you're putting everything possible into that. And then to look at that and suddenly be like, oh, I, like this team's already been shuttered because of poor management must be absolutely insane. With um, a couple more questions, and I really appreciate the time. Um, with DLC now, uh, and I know, you know, of course, Halo had DLC and a lot of modern games, you need that sort of content drip afterwards. Sure. Is it even harder to take time off after you're done with a major project and it goes gold because you know you have this additional content you need to do with if you think about you know way back when with cartridges when that thing's done that thing's done you walk away like i would assume you would have some sort of vacation period or like you said time to just kind of chill because you've put everything into that game is it even harder to find free time as a developer because you know there's updates and new content that's always coming out Mm, part of it um you know the 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 new focus on on uh, managing the projects well so we can avoid crunch in general has actually helped with this post launch support of games tremendously i think um where you manage you have to, i mean because you have um you're you're supporting post launch well before launch. I mean, you've got a whole chunk of your team that has already split off four to six months before a game even launches. Um, because you've got, you've already gone through content complete. You've gone through design complete and code complete. And then you have to go through this arduous series of, of testing process, of course, that is necessary. But uh, during that entire time, uh, through test and certification and then ultimately ship of a product, uh, you've got a good chunk of your team already working on the future of that title, supporting it. So if that's managed well, it actually isn't too big of a problem. Um, now, there are other factors involved with DLC that I'd love to talk about um, that we're go- we're going to be treading new waters for um with uh because we'll be supporting our the game we're making of course uh, and we need to be thinking about what's what is the the best path forward what's what's the the uh acceptable path forward for downloadable content or i dlc means something right now that i don't know if it even is going to be pertinent in the future like i think you're right as as far as like paid map packs and all that kind of stuff my preference being that we don't fraction uh like fracture our audience by pushing out map packs that are paid for 
um, that we have some other way of, of supporting the game's revenue uh, to pay for those kind of things. And, of course, that's come in the form of microtransactions through a lot of games. Um, but it's either done poorly or it's done in a way that's pay to win. And it's, and it's got a really, it leaves a really bad taste in people's mouths. Um, but I think there's a way there that it can be done um, that is palatable. It's it's hard to find that though, right? Because right now, again, I joked earlier about Call of Duty. You see that GIF where suddenly this you know paid loot box drops in front of you on this like the beach during yeah, World War yeah. II, which is just bizarre. And you know, like it, it, like you said, there's there's a luck aspect to it with certain games. It almost feels like gambling. I assume as a developer right now during this climate where no one's really doing it well, it has to be this massive challenge in front of you. It is, um, and it's um, it is something. Speaking of passion, uh, uh, with everybody here in the studio, it is something everybody is very passionate about. There are proponents of it, and uh, there are those who completely disagree with any form of microtransaction in a game here in our yeah. studio. So we have really uh, healthy arguments, let's just put it that way, <laughs> about how it should go. Um, because we recognize, like, we'd like to be able to to provide content for the games we develop in a way that doesn't fracture our audience. Um, and in order to do that, we have to come up with some other cool way of, of generating the revenue that, uh, to pay for all of that stuff, uh, no, for our development of it, because we can't do it all for free, of course. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, so some amount of revenue has to come in in order to continue to support that game if it's got legs. And, uh, of course, any game, um, with a multiplayer component or, um, an, any kind of a, a expanding campaign or story components, um, they hope for that kind of, uh, that longevity to a game. Uh, but it comes along with the challenge of, of, uh, affording it as well. Yeah. It's, we're in this weird spot where it's like, do you just suddenly charge $80 for a new game? Is that the path forward? Or like you mentioned, like, is it just smart microtransactions that don't take advantage of, the, you know, the user that don't give certain people competitive advantage? You don't want to split the audience. There's just so many factors going into it. But then as someone now, I've talked to so many developers, I've talked to so many people involved in games, mm -hmm. like you need, like you said, you can't do this for free. You need that revenue stream. There's, there, there has to be a solution for this. And I do feel like, there have to be enough smart people out there who hopefully aren't too locked down by the publisher and you know are given the leeway to try new things and try new microtransactions that actually work for both the developer and the user. Well, fortunately, we are in, in a good place right now on that front. So I think we'll, uh, we'll be coming to some good solutions soon. Uh, we need to, as, our, as far as the studio is concerned, to, uh, like really to land on a design mechanic that... Um, that does work uh, long-term for us on that front. I'm so fascinated to see what you come up with. Uh, last thing from me. So, I mean, you've worked on one of the biggest hits of all time being Halo. And, you know, at the mm. time, it's suddenly this really incredible first-person shooter on a console. Uh, <laughs> and I feel like I talk to a lot of people who, no matter how much talent is there, of course, there's a lot of, you need the well-managed team. You need the people who know what they're doing. You need a creative vision and passion. But it's there's a large component of luck that goes into what makes, you know, a quote unquote hit. You look at Minecraft, you look at player unknown battleground. There's these games that either they start entire genres and blow up that way, influence everything moving forward. Or you look at something again, like PUBG is there's been games similar to that, but it just did it in the perfect way at the right time. And suddenly 10, 15 million people are playing this. Do you think there is, a formula to breaking out like that or is there just so much luck involved with game development what people want at what time that it's hard to actually tell what's going to work i do not think there is a formula at all mm -hmm. um it and it is not all luck either at the same time um it's a combination of of having that solid uh, game entity that something that people can latch on to and something that uh, actually uh, is a great experience first and foremost but coming along like like halo one we 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 really it was a good marriage of a good game mixed with a launch of a title 
uh, sorry, uh, launch of a console. So mm-hmm. we have this, we have that good marriage together where at that point, there were very few games to pick, you know, to play on Xbox, uh, the first Xbox. So, um, luckily Halo was a good game to play and that just propelled it and, uh, and perpetuated that kind of, um, uh, excitement around it. So we were lucky in that way, I think. Um, had we continued on the original roots of which we uh, were pushing prior to being purchased by Microsoft and moved out here to the Pacific Northwest area uh, and and shipped it on the Mac and the PC, uh, it's questionable as to whether or not it would have been a success like it is now. It's crazy how many factors go into that, how many little things, little accidents or things that you'd never expect lead to things it's that true. change the entire genre sure it's true but you know at the same time i am a huge and firm believer that there a great game is not going to come from the mind of one individual yeah it's not going to come from some brilliant idea it comes from a a group of individuals who you you have a you have this opportunity when you when you hire in people to to bring in this chemistry of of people who are happy are <laughs> excited about what they're doing and build this great chemistry between them to generate and innovate ideas that's where the true magic occurs yeah um when I have a lot of great ideas. It was the, when when I first started this game, but it's nothing compared to what it is now. Yeah. That we've hired all these individuals who all of bringing their they're each one of them bringing their own uh, their own perspective to the project and taking ownership over part of the project and bringing this wealth of knowledge and creative idea to it that um turns it into something really special. Uh, if you can manage that well, and if you can drive and lead that that creative energy in a in the right direction, then you're on to something really special that I think will connect with people, and that's where we're at right now. And that's that's the kind of thing that I sit back in our studio and I just I I can't help but just smile, um, looking at the activity the uh between individuals of the team the play tests that we have together uh in the afternoons and the excitement and discussion that happens afterwards and the uh the continued development that occurs on the next day when we go into it again and uh, play something trying something completely new to see what works and what doesn't that's the kind of great stuff that makes a really entertaining and uh fantastic gameplay experience that um, I think is pretty special, uh, compared to, um, well, in c- compared to some other games that, uh, maybe don't have that kind of mix or are, are, are not, uh, as fortunate, uh, uh, with being able to develop, you know, from, from a ground up kind of pers- perspective like that. Yeah. Um, because there are still many, many studios out there that develop very, very differently. Um, and I'm not saying that they're wrong by any means, but uh, it just doesn't work for the kind of game that we're building. And for my experience, it doesn't create the kind of um, uh, energized uh, player experience that, um, that connects with uh, a broader audience. Yeah. I think people underestimate and undervalue the joy that you need in some of this stuff. Cause you know, of course it's not always going to be that way, but when you're a happy developer and you feel like empowered and what you're saying actually matters, there's not just yeah. this one person saying, this is our idea, this is going to happen. It leads to an entirely different game. And that's, it sounds like, you know, very happily, that's what's going on with you guys. Uh, Marcus, yeah. where can people find you and your team on social media so that if they do want to see what you're working <laughs> on in the near future, what's the best way to do that? Oh, they can find me at uh, game underscore fabricator on Twitter. It's a great Twitter and- handle. <laughs> and then uh, uh, at V1 Interactive uh, for the studio as well. Uh, we'll we're going to be um, uh, talking a lot more about what's happening in the studio coming up soon. So it, uh, it would be good to start following now because uh, a lot more data is going to be put up there soon. 
All right, perfect. I can't wait. Marcus, thanks so much for doing this. I really do appreciate the time. Yeah. It sounds like what you're doing is really incredible. And again, it, it's 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 awesome to hear someone who's gone through that crunch, who's gone through the AAA stuff and now has that experience and can say, all right, I'm going to do this right. We're going to do this the way that makes the most sense for how games should be made now. Um, and really, I, I can't wait to see what you guys put together. And hopefully we could talk again once some of that information is more public. We'd be happy to. And thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Perfect. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.